when you encounter evil, you know it. Okay, you know, you will know, trust me, if you ever encounter it, if you haven't already, you will know that it's standing right in front of you. In 1993, a series of disturbing rapes targeting teenagers between the ages 13 and 19 caused a wave of fear in Jackson County. A serial rapist, it seemed, was on the prowl. 23 years would pass without an arrest, but in 2015, an ordinary traffic stop would change everything. Well, almost. This is Michigan Crime Stories. Michigan Crime Stories is a podcast that explores murder, mysteries, and mayhem in the Mitten State. Criminal behavior has always enthralled us. It's when societies determine what is and isn't allowed. We assume heinous crimes are committed by monsters, individuals we dehumanize in an effort to make sense of their deeds. Their victims sometimes seem distant, just faded names in a passing headline. But the terrifying truth is that crimes are committed by ordinary people, just like you and me. And many of those crimes happen right in our own backyards. My name is Gus Burns. And I'm Darcy Moran. We're reporters for MLive.com and your host for Michigan Crime Stories. This episode is titled, Lapsed Justice. This episode of Michigan Crime Stories contains descriptions of sexual assault that could be disturbing to some listeners. Please use discretion. I was only 19 years old. And I was going to community college, and I worked a night job. And I worked about, oh, I would say less than a mile away from where I lived. And ironically, a friend of mine about a week before had given me, like, this huge can of mace. That's Jane, a married mother of two who lives and works in Muskegon. Like, it was so big. It was like a can of hairspray. And... I remembered, you know, I could take that with me, but for some reason I didn't that day. In 1993, she became the second of five suspected victims linked to the Jackson County rape spree. Jane is a pseudonym we're using to protect her identity at her request. I got most of my way to work, and throughout my walk, which was probably a 25-minute walk, I would say, um there were these kids that were probably 12 or 13 years old. I'm going to guess. They just kept kind of like circling me on their bikes. And I, I started to feel uneasy about it. And I got to this one corner that was literally about a block and a half away. I could see my work from there. I heard like running behind me and I turned around and it was the guy in like a jogging suit african-american and my first instinct honest to god was run run for your life but i didn't because i truthfully i didn't want to like offend the black guy i didn't want to seem like i was just being stereotypical and being afraid of a black guy right so i didn't run which i should have and he stopped right next to me and put his arm on my back, like put his hand on my back and was like, hey, how are you doing? My name is Mike. 
and what's your name? And I just like servily answered this guy, like told him my name and on my way to work, told him where I worked. Don't know why. It's all like just pure stupidity where you sort of freeze and answer and, you know, just don't, you're not thinking, you know. The man asked Jane if she wanted to hang out. No, she told him. She was on her way to work. He then made it clear. She didn't really have a choice. So he kind of like manhandled me behind the bank and proceeded to rape me. And there was a person that was, that came out on their back porch. I remember that. And I was too afraid to yell or scream or anything. He told me he had a gun. In my case, I wasn't vaginally raped or anything. He just forced me to perform oral sex on him. And so at that point, he basically told me if I don't fight him and I don't scream or do anything stupid, he wouldn't shoot me. And at 19, you know, I was compliant. And then once it was all over with, he just like basically left me there and let me go. And I walked up to the first gas station and you know, they called the cops and stuff, and they were able to get a sample of his DNA from me. You know, I've always been a very strong-willed person with a strong character, and, you know, my mom was the prison guard, and, you know, I I wouldn't call myself a tough chick, but I would say that I heard a lot of stories and stuff. I just was very, you know, seasoned at that age, and was able to just say, I'm not going to let this person ruin my life. I'm not going to allow this person any kind of energy. And I did move on very quickly, intentionally. Jane would come to learn she wasn't alone. Word of similar sexual assaults spread quickly through newspapers and lunch counter discussions. There was a 19-year-old pistol whipped into submission an 18-year-old grabbed and pushed between two homes, and a 13-year-old pulled off her bike and dragged into some woods, according to news reports. And they all went unsolved, for a time. Nearly a quarter century later, a 48-year-old man was speeding through the city of Jackson in a 1999 black Jeep, about midnight on September 17, 2015. Police stopped him. He exited with bloodshot eyes, spoke with slurred speech, and stunk of booze, police reports say. Ozzie Worthy was arrested for third offense operating while under the influence of liquor, a felony. The new felony drinking and driving charge meant Worthy would be required to submit DNA under Michigan law. A couple months later, Worthy's mouth was swabbed and his DNA sent out for analysis. Worthy, who's now 52, has a long criminal history spanning back to the 1990s, but mostly for petty crime mostly for driving infractions in addition to a forgery case, a domestic assault case, and at least four prior drinking and driving convictions. Worthy's DNA was entered into a national database. It set off an alert. The DNA profile matched that of the previously unidentified attacker in the 1993 sexual assaults. Jane finally had a suspect. I think just thinking they were never going to find him, it made it easier to just move on, you know, like, you didn't know who he was, where he was. You just figured, okay, you know, he just faded away, right? Well, then when they said they actually found him, that stirred up some emotions that I didn't really even know I had about it. 
By 2016, Jackson Police submitted a request to the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office to review and press charges in the rape case. Worthy at the time was already serving between two and six years in prison for drunken driving. There was a problem, though, as Jackson County Chief Assistant Prosecutor Katie Rizmerski explains. It was clear from the get-go that unfortunately the criminal sexual conduct uh, statute of limitations had already expired for all of those rapes. The statute of limitations for first-degree criminal sexual assault used to be six years, but in 2001, that statute of limitations was eliminated, meaning a suspect can now be charged at any point. That sounds like good news for the Worthy case, but the issue is the change in law only makes a difference for past crimes if the previously set statute of six years hadn't lapsed before the change was implemented. In Worthy's case, the statute of limitations had lapsed in 1999, two years before the change in law. Had the assaults occurred in 1995 or later, he still could have been prosecuted, at least in the case of first-degree criminal sexual conduct. Here's Western Michigan University Cooley Law School professor and defense attorney Tanya Krauss-Phelan speaking on the statute of limitations. The whole purpose of statute of limitations, is, it sort of serves two purposes, quite frankly. One is, as a prosecutor, you want to be able to, make, to get your evidence and make sure that you have your witnesses in a timely fashion because over time evidence can disappear, witness memory can fade. And, and then the flip side of that is, as a defendant, because you, the uh, witness's memory can fade and evidence can be lost or, or fade or whatever the case may be, it could actually make it harder for a person to defend against those charges. So statute of limitations are something that the, the criminal legal system has dealt with for hundreds of years. The solution, or so the chief prosecutor thought, was to charge Worthy with a count each of kidnapping in connection with the five assaults. On December 7th of 2018, the prosecutor filed kidnapping charges. It was a day before Worthy's earliest release date for the drunken driving sentence, but they didn't stick. The statute of limitations for kidnapping had also passed. What was not clear to us at first, uh, and unfortunately I have to take the credit for that, uh, what was not clear to us at first is that the kidnapping statute of limitations had also expired. Um, I'm not really sure how I miscalculated. I, I wish I could go back and recreate for you my mistake, uh, because that's what it comes down to. It was my mistake. Rezmerski said her office also checked to see if Worthy ever lived out of state because law says that in those cases, the statute of limitations is effectively frozen on the date the person moved. However, there was no indication Worthy ever spent a significant length of time living outside of Michigan. Worthy remains imprisoned in Cooper Street Correctional Facility in Jackson, Michigan, serving out his drinking and driving sentence. He's been denied parole on at least two occasions, in part based on recommendations from the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office that he remain behind bars. While Worthy could technically be paroled at any time, since he's already served beyond his earliest release date, his next regularly scheduled parole hearing is set for October 7th of 2019. The longest he will serve is another two and a half years in prison, with a scheduled release date of no later than December 8, 2021. What concerns the prosecutor and Jane is the possibility there are other victims out there, or worse, that Worthy might attack someone else upon being released. That absence of any other violent criminal activity just seemed odd 
and I and I don't know what that means. I don't know if he committed other crimes and they simply didn't get reported or they um, didn't get get investigated and maybe there weren't rape kits done. I you know so maybe there's no way to now tie him to those. I or maybe he just didn't. Maybe he stopped. But that would be a, a departure from at least what I have experienced as a more typical pattern of criminal activity, at least with that type of crime. Jane's feelings about the attack have shifted over time. At first it was about simply surviving the trauma and moving forward. Now Jane looks back with anger and frustration, both with her attacker and the system that failed her. It was just an emotional period of a few months of just like anger, anguish, sorrow, disappointment, um, you know, and it wasn't about at that point being raped. It was about our justice system. It was about how, how the hell did that happen? You just wasted a couple of years of my life thinking about this crap and you're not going to do anything about it. So why bother me? This is Darcy Moran with Michigan Crime Stories, and I'm sitting here with Gus Burns, who told this story today. And Gus, I want to jump right in. Um, This is a pretty complicated story about statute of limitations. And I know you mentioned that there was another change in law that could have impacted this case, but didn't. Can you explain that a little bit more? Uh, Sure. There were actually two parts. So we know the uh, criminal sexual assault, first degree, that statute of limitations was wiped out. So if it happened today that would have changed the outcome of this. And the second part relates to DNA. If anyone commits a crime and their DNA is collected at the crime scene, then there is no time limit for when they match you to that crime. So if he would have submitted his DNA 30 years later and they matched it up to this crime scene, then he could still be charged. But that's a recent change in the law. Yeah, I mean, fairly. I think that first came into play in 2001 when they eliminated the CSE 1 statute of limitations altogether. Um, But it's not retroactive. So even though these two changes, one for the statute of limitations occurred and one related to DNA, neither of them could have been applied to the Worthy case. Is that correct? Correct. I mean, they won't help you out if they go back that far, no. I want to switch a little bit here. And can you tell me why these changes in law took place? Uh, Based on my conversations with a couple other attorneys, some who weren't mentioned in the podcast, they said that a lot of this, the impetus for it was the 2001 Boston Globe spotlight investigation into the Catholic Church, which looked at abuse by priests that was covered up by the church. And a lot of those, in, in some cases, those were children. Basically, that was the impetus for changing the law in 2001 and making it more strict kind of give opportunity for these kids to come forward as adults, to my understanding. Yeah, back then it was actually a pretty small window. It was six years. So if you were abused when you were 13, your statute of limitations was expired, you know, shortly after you became an adult, even started reflecting on what happened to you. And I think, I mean, just from my knowledge of uh, cops and courts reporting, like there's a lot that's better known now about how memory works and how trauma can impact a person and their memory and why people might need that larger time frame. I mean, is that your understanding as well? That seems to be exactly why they have extended the age um, so that you have a, a window after you become an adult and start reflecting on your life, what's happened to you as a child, to actually take action on it. And then we have, most recently, 
the Michigan State University Larry Nasser case, and that led uh, legislators to extend the amount of time that people who were victims before the age 18, so children, it extended the amount of time they have to report from 10 to 15 years or from their 21st birthday up until their 28th birthday it is now. So it's really just like the last 20 years where we've seen a lot of these major changes. Yeah, prior to that, it was pretty much everything was six years. Got it. And you mentioned Larry Nasser, and what always comes to mind for me in that case is the women that came forward, the hundreds of women that came forward to tell their stories. And in this case, obviously, you were able to speak with a victim who was willing to do that with us, and we're so thankful for her doing that. Um, can you tell me a little bit of what struck you in your conversations with uh, Jane, as we're calling her? I mean, there were several things. Um, first of all, she kind of downplayed what happened to her, I felt like in comparison to other victims, and she's come to know a lot of the other victims and knows their stories closely. So I felt like she was downplaying what happened to her a little bit. And then just her perseverance. I mean, she seemed very strong. She was able to go through her life and persevere, and she went on to have children, a a stable family, and a stable career. Well, um, I'm really thankful that she spoke with us. I'm thankful to you for telling this story, Gus. Thank you. Um, I'm Darcy Moran. I'm Gus Burns. And this is Michigan Crime Stories. This is Gus Burns, and I would like to say thank you to those who helped with the reporting of this story, including Jackson County Chief Assistant Prosecutor Katie Rizmerski and Attorney Tanya Krauss-Phelan. But especially, I'd like to thank Jane, the survivor who was willing to share her very personal story. If you have any story ideas you'd like to share with Michigan Crime Stories, you can contact me, Gus Burns, at fburns at mlive.com. That's F-B-U-R-N-S at mlive.com. Thank you.